Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Before we even start with your notes tonight, I want to preface what I'm about to say tonight by reminding you of a diagram that you may have seen before, or this may be the first time you've seen it, but it's something that we do a lot here at Emmanuel, just to kind of remind ourselves of what's really, really important and what's sort of important and what's not that important, okay? So you've got this bullseye type thing. And in the middle, you have dogma. The next tier, you have doctrines. And on the outer tier, you have preferences. And so the way that we understand theology and the way we understand church life at Emmanuel is in the middle circle in the dogma, these are those absolute essential beliefs that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. In other words, if you deviate from dogma, you either become another world religion, you become a cult, or you become a heretic. So some examples of dogma would be like the Trinity, the deity of Christ. He's fully God, he's fully man. The virgin birth, the cross, the resurrection, Jesus as the only way of salvation, salvation by grace through faith, um, the reality of heaven and of hell the authority of the Bible, okay? Those are things that we can't waffle on. You, you can't come to me and say, well, you know, I think I have a difference of opinion on a dogma. We'd say, well, dogmas are hills you've got to die on, okay? So dogmas. And so regardless of what denomination you're from or what, you know, what, what, what name is on the outside of your church, if you are an orthodox, which means Bible-believing, true, evangelical Christian, we all hold to the dogma that's non-negotiable, okay? The next tier is what we call doctrines, okay? These are what we would call secondary issues. So dogmas are first, dogma are first-order issues that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. Like, these are absolutely essential. Doctrines are second-tier issues that are important, and you can have strong opinions or convictions about doctrines, but you can agree to disagree. So let me give you some examples of doctrines. Mode of baptism. Okay, we are a Baptist church, so how do we baptize? We baptize under the water full immersion. Um, if you have a Presbyterian friend or a Methodist friend um, or an Episcopalian friend, what would they may do? They may sprinkle. Okay, some churches, uh, let me give you a, a perfect example. Every Wednesday, I didn't today because I was in Denver and I was on my way back. But every Wednesday, I pray with six other pastors in the area. Um, and so we've got from all different denominations. And so, for example, um, we've got two in our group that are a little bit more charismatic, which believe in speaking in tongues. Um, we've got one in our group that's a little bit more on the Arminian side that believes you can lose your salvation. Um, so you've got, hey, Dale. Come on in. So you've got some really strong convictions, and doctrines are kind of what make denominations. 
And so, like, baptism would be, a, like, we're not, we may have a strong belief on baptism, but I'm not going to say to you, if you sprinkle and I submerse, you're not a true Christian, okay? Speaking in tongues, I don't necessarily speak in tongues, but maybe others do. I'm not going to say because you do and I don't, you know, you're not a true Christian or you're not going to heaven, okay? Um, eternal security, whether you lose your salvation, whether you can keep yourself, you know, whether you're eternally secure, whether you lose your salvation, you can agree to disagree upon that. Um, gender roles, like sometimes some churches have like female pastors. We don't hear it, Emmanuel, but some churches do. Um, so the, the re- where I'm going tonight is end times views. We would put in the doctrines category, which means that there are differing views of how we could interpret events related to the end times that we can agree to disagree upon, okay? Now, preferences would be like, I like blue carpet versus I like green carpet, or I like a praise team with guitars and drums, or I like a full choir with an orchestra. Um, I like the King James Version. I like the ESV. I like the NIV. I like my pastor to preach in a tie. I like my pastor to preach in jeans and a it's, it's basically, it's like, it's nothing really biblical. It's more like what you prefer, okay? And so a lot of churches split over preferences, which is kind of sad. Okay, so with, with that being said, this again, this is not in your notes, so I'm just going to write something on the side here. There are four, um, I guess I would call them absolutes. There are four things that we have to believe about the end times that are four things that, are, that, that have to be there, okay? So number one, the literal, visible, physical return of Christ, okay? So regardless of what end times view you hold to, and I'm not going to give you labels because that's just going to confuse you. Are you premillennial? Are you amillennial? Are you postmillennial? Are you pre-trib rapture? Are you a classic dispensationalist? Are you a historic premillennialist? Or as my dad would say, are you a panmillennialist? It's all going to pan out in the end, so who cares which view you have? <laughs> so, okay, so there's got to be a literal, visible, physical return. Okay, number two, there is a resurrection of the dead or a catching up, which we're going to talk about tonight. A literal resurrection from the dead or a catching up. There is a judgment. And then there is the final state of heaven and hell. Okay. So those are like the four key issues that have to be there regardless of what end times view you hold. If you don't believe in a literal, visible, physical return of Christ, you're not interpreting the Bible correctly. He's coming back. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. Those that are still alive, there's going to be a catching up into the air. There is going to be a final judgment, and then there's going to be heaven, and there's going to be hell. Okay. All end times views have those four components. The question becomes, what's the order? What's the time? How does it all work out? And so let me just, let me just do a poll tonight. How many of you know which end times view you hold to? Raise your hand. One, two, three. 
Okay, four. Okay, how many of you are coming to this with a blank slate like, I have no idea, I'm, I'm willing to learn tonight? Okay, how many of you kind of know a little bit where you're at? Okay, so most of you are like, I kind of know. Okay, I kind of know. Okay, so I'm not going to give you, there's, there's basically four major views that have been around for church history. We're not going to get into those tonight um, because I think it would be too confusing. And so I could have taught Revelation by giving you, like, okay, we're going to look at chapter 6, and I'm going to give you all four views of how they, they view it. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you Pastor Sean's view, and you guys can agree or disagree with me, depending on how you understand that. So what I'm trying to tell you tonight is there may be some issues that I bring up tonight that you may have some very strong disagreements with, and that's okay. As long as we believe these four things, the timing of them, and how they play out in history, in the order of them, and all the intimate details of how that worked out, we can agree to disagree upon that. Okay. So, for example, if you don't hold the same end times view I hold, is an end times view a dogma where I'd say, we're going to be out of fellowship and we're not going to, you're not going to go to heaven because you don't have the same view as I do. Okay. If it comes to the Trinity, what are we going to say? That's a dogma. If it comes to Jesus as the only way of salvation, if it comes to the resurrection. So what I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to set this up tonight by saying what I may teach you tonight may shatter some of your preconceived notions or some of your views that you hold to, and that's okay. I, you're totally free to have whatever end times view you have. And here's the issue. I did an extensive study probably about 12 years ago, an extensive end time study where I got pieces of paper and put them all around actually the, um, it was in the old building pretty much all around the sanctuary in the old building and I'm writing filling in the charts and graphs and everything okay came up with and so what I did was I looked at and then I looked at all the different end times views that there are and I looked at the strengths and weaknesses of every view and here's what I came to the conclusion of there's not one view that is foolproof that you can absolutely say this is the way it's going to be so what I would say is be aware of anybody that comes to you and says, this is exactly how it's going to be. I am absolutely positive. I am dogmatic. And if you disagree with me, you are wrong on end times views. Because okay? what I would say to them is there's holes in all of them. So what you need to do is say this. Here's my best understanding of the biblical data, and here are my reasons why. Okay? And if you're going to disagree with me or I'm going to disagree with you, I need you to say, here's why I disagree. Not just, I disagree. Why do you disagree? Well, that's because the way I grew up. <laughs> Wrong answer. Um, th th that's what I've always been taught. Okay, that's great. But I want you to say, Pastor Sean, I vehemently disagree with you. And that's totally okay. Vehemently means like strong disagreement with you. I strongly disagree with you, Pastor Sean, and here's my reasons why. And I will say, I am so glad you gave me your reasons. I don't see validity in those reasons. No, I wouldn't say that. I'd say, <laughs> I, I, I understand your reasons. No, I wouldn't say that to you. I would say, Here are your, here's my view, here's my reasons. And you do that humbly. And I would say, I am so glad that you took the time to tell me what your view is and what your reasons are. Here's my disagreements with them, but you took the time to tell me what you believe. Versus, this is what I believe, and... You're wrong, Pastor Sean. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? So what I'm, I'm trying to preface this tonight because some of you may disagree with me. And I'm trying to like 
ease into the water, okay? <laughs> and give you permission to disagree with me tonight. So we're going to look at Revelation 6 again from a different take. We looked at this last week, but I want to look at it again. And you're like, why are we looking at this again? Well, some of you came to me after last week and said, man, you went really fast last week. And some of you in here were going, I'm not tracking with you. So if I get feedback like that, I need to take the feedback from the class and be like, whoa, I need to maybe slow down. So we're going to look at Revelation 6 again. We're not even going to get to 7 because 7 was where it got really confusing. Um, but here's, here's Revelation chapter 6. So this is the, the beginning of the judgments that the Lamb of God, Jesus, is pouring out on the earth. And again, how are we to take Revelation? Do we take it literalistically or do we take it symbolically? In other words, is there a literal horseman coming out and riding a horse doing these things? Or is it symbolic of something? You guys tell me. It's symbolic, okay? Now, when Jesus comes back on a white horse, is that going to be symbolic or literal? In Revelation chapter 9, it says he's coming back on a white horse. Yeah, in chapter 19. Yeah, so what, I'm, what I want to do tonight is say that these seals in Revelation chapter 6, I think are symbolic of times of trouble and persecution that must not only happen in the future, Yes, but I want us to see these as common occurrences that come today. Okay, so let me just, before we even start Revelation chapter 6, do we live in a world where there's sickness? Do we live in a world where there's persecution? Do we live in a world where people are killed for their faith? Do we live in a world where there's wars and nations warring against each other? Okay, has that been going on forever? Yes. Okay, so... Right now, some of these things are happening. Does that necessarily mean that there won't be a time in the future where it's intensified? Okay, so, so the way that I understand Revelation is it's, a, it's an already not yet. Does that make sense? There's some things that are happening already right now, but there's a not yet aspect to it. And the not yet aspect to it is I think these things ramp up as we get closer to the very end. So, for example, when we talk about wars, we talk about famine, when we talk about earthquakes, those things are happening right now. But right before Jesus comes back, my personal view is there's going to be an intensification of those things that are happening right now. Does that make sense? So what we're about to see here is that these things are part and parcel of the world we live in right now, but they're also going to happen in the future. So let me ask you a question. Are we living in the tribulation? Go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. And what does John say? How does John start the letter in the first chapter? I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of God. Does John consider himself living in a time of tribulation? And he calls it what? Okay, now here's the question. Do we live in times of tribulation? And is there going to be a great tribulation? The answer is yes. Okay. So 
As we've looked at Revelation so far, chapter 1 through chapter 6, I just want to ask you a question based upon what we've seen so far. Do you see anywhere in this text that says Christians will be exempt, exempt from what happens as a result of these occurrences? Have you seen anything in here that says Christians are going to be out of, out of here? Let me ask you another question. Do any of the texts that we've read so far in the book of Revelation, have we seen anything about a rapture or being taken away out of the world or being transported into heaven? Have we seen anything about that yet? Paul talks about it, but I'm just saying, in the context of Revelation, have we seen that? Okay, no. As a matter of fact, what you see is that most of these texts are telling us that Christians have been martyred during this time. So John himself, in chapter 1, verse 9, sees himself being in a time of tribulation. Okay, what did Jesus say? John 16, 33. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you have, may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation, same Greek word. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world, what will you have? Tribulation. Does he say you may have tribulation? You will have tribulation. As long as you're in the world, you're going to have times of trouble. Okay, that's Jesus. What does Luke tell us in Acts 14.22? He's, he's kind of quoting the ministry of Paul here. In Acts 14.22, at the end of Paul's first missionary journey, when he goes back to the churches he planted, it says he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. Many tribulations. So the people in Acts seem to think that we would go through some tribulations on our way to heaven. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. John even said in the beginning of this book, I'm in the tribulation. Kate, there, there go ahead. Well, you're talking about a time. Yes. Yes, yes. And what I would say, yeah, you're saying is it going to weed out. The, the best, God's way of weeding out false professors of faith is persecution. Because when the, when the heat's ratcheted up, only true believers are going to stay faithful to Christ. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. What does Paul say in Romans 8.35? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall what? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he goes on to say, no, none of these things were more than conquerors. So Paul seemed to think that we would be going through a time of tribulation. In Romans 12, 12, what did Paul say? Rejoice in hope. That's going off the screen there. Be, pa be what? Patient in tribulation. So what I'm showing you guys is that don't just think that there's a future great tribulation that you may not... That, oh, thank, thankfully, there's a, there's a day in the future called the great tribulation, and I'm not going to have to go through it. What does Paul say? What does Jesus say? What does John say? Living on this world, you will have times of tribulation. An interesting point because you know, I've, I've been led to believe that 
tribulation is out there, and man, I'm glad I'm not going to go through it. Right. But here it clearly says that. Yeah, and I'm and I'm challenging that view that you've held. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'm and I hope you I hope you understand the kindness that, in which I'm doing that. I'm just trying to show you guys that the biblical writers viewed living in a fallen world of sin as a time of tribulation. Now, let me ask you this question. Are there degrees of tribulation? So, for example, do some of you, are some of you going through harder times than others at certain periods in your life? Okay. Are there people in other countries that are going through harder things than what we're going through? Okay, yes. So, on a worldwide scale, there's, tri- there's, there's pockets of tribulation going on all the time. Some people experience it to a greater degree than others. Some places in the world experience it to a greater degree than others. Towards the end, and, and again, I, I don't know if it's going to be seven years. I don't know actually how long it's going to be. But there's going to be an intensified period of major tribulation right before Jesus comes back. And there's times of tribulation right now. So when we read chapter 6... God here is ordaining in His sovereignty these things to happen as a way to bring judgment upon the lost in the end times, finally, but also as a way to purify and refine the saved. What I don't want you to, th- what I don't want you to buy into is this idea that, and you get this a lot from the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. What's the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel tell you? You will never be sick. You will never have problems, and you need to be rich. And if, you have, if you're sick, you have problems, you go through struggles, and you're not rich, you must not be a very strong Christian. And I can help you be strong. Here's how I, here's how I can help you. Give me the money, okay? Give money to... I'm, I'm just being facetious here. You know, the televangelist, give me money, and, I, and my anointing will rub off on you, and I'll, I may send you a prayer cloth in the mail, or I'll send you some miracle water in the mail, or I'll send you my latest book... And, and then you will really have this breakthrough where you'll never struggle ever again. And you know, there's a great Greek word for that. You know what it's called? It's called baloney. Okay? That's from my dad. That's a free one. My, my, dad, my dad used that one when, he was, when I was listening to him preach growing up. Yes? That would be the same as the uh, healing. Uh, uh, yeah, healing. Yeah, it, yeah, anybody that says... You are guaranteed to have a stress-free, problem-free life right now. And if you're not, it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. That's not the gospel. We've just looked at maybe, what, five verses that talk about you're going to be in times of tribulation, times of trouble, times of of problems, okay? And so we just need to realize living in a fallen world, we're going to experience these things. Now, when we come to chapter 6, you've got the, 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 the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the riders on the, the four horses. And what I did not give you last week, and I think I went really fast through it, what I didn't give you last week that we're going to look at this week is the Old Testament background to this and how this relates to the Gospels and what Jesus teaches in the Gospels. Because Revelation chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 24 kind of fit together. But this imagery of horsemen goes back to Zechariah. So Zechariah chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, this is Old Testament. Zechariah sees a vision. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, 
and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And I don't know why it keeps falling off the bottom. Is it on your screen? I mean, is it on your sheet? But it's not. Is it falling off your sheet too? Patrol the earth. I have to give you guys a scripture there. So in the Old Testament, there's these four horses, and they're different colors, and they're sent out to patrol the earth. That's that's all we know from from the Old Testament. Zechariah six one through eight. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between the two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot's dappled horses. What's dappled? Is it have horse people? Is it like spotted? Okay, spotted horses. Okay. All of them strong. Then I answered to the angel who talked to me, Who are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of the earth. The chariot with the black horse goes toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horse came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth, and he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Don't ask me to interpret what that means in Zechariah. What I'm just showing you is there's an Old Testament pattern for these four horses of different colors going out to patrol the earth. So when you get to... Revelation chapter 6, you have four horsemen. So let's actually read Revelation chapter 6. So let's, let's start in verse 1. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb, that's Jesus, opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright and red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence by the wild beasts of the earth. Okay. So you got war, you got death, you got pestilence, you got, as you get, as you get into, um, let's just continue to read. Let's read the whole thing and then we'll come back. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, full of moon. The, the full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, 
And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? All right. Let's see how Revelation chapter 6 relates to what Jesus taught in the Gospels. So what did Jesus teach in Matthew chapter 24? See if you can see a comparison here of what Jesus says is going to happen. Matthew 24, verses 6 through 14. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must first take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And they are but the beginning of birth pains. And they will deliver you up to what? Tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. What does Jesus say is going to happen? Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, people killing each other, times of tribulation. Okay, does Jesus give us any time frame about how many years it's going to take? Does Jesus here tell us about anything about being removed from that? Okay, I'm just, just telling you. Okay, Luke chapter 21, 9 through 11. This is Luke's version of Jesus' teaching. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be a great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So let me ask you a question. Have you seen anything in Revelation so far to indicate that believers will be secretly taken out of the picture and not have to endure any type of tribulation? I'm just asking that question. So let's take an excursion tonight because the big question everybody always asks is, I want to know about the rapture. When's the rapture going to happen? Go through the book of Revelation and I dare you to find the word rapture or find anything about people being caught up. You can't find it. Now, that doesn't mean that that truth is not taught elsewhere in the Bible. But you don't go to Revelation to get your teaching on the resurrection, per se. So we go to 1 Thessalonians. So let's take an excursion. Let's jump out of Revelation for a moment. Let's take an excursion. And I mean that word literally, an excursion, because it may take us a little while to, to go on this excursion and come back. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm sorry, did I say chapter 4? Yeah, chapter 4. Uh, let's start with 15. Let's just go 15 through 18. 15 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 15 through 18. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, the voice of an archangel, 
and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay. There's a lot of parallels going on here between Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Revelation. So what does this passage of Scripture teach? Okay. Well, the first thing we see here is those who have died will go before those who are still alive at the coming of the Lord. Who gets to go first at the resurrection? People that are on earth or people that have already died, they're in their graves. The dead who are in their graves are going to pop up first. Okay? They get first dibs. Okay? So if we're still alive, sorry, you haven't had experience death yet. Those that experience death, they get first dibs. They're going to be resurrected. Okay. Now, he says they'll, those who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. It's the word parousia. It can either mean an arrival of Jesus or just the presence of Jesus. It's the same word that was asked back in Matthew 24, verse 3, that started the whole conversation he sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The coming back of Christ. Now, here's where we understand this word having significance to the original audience. This word, parousia, it had a significant meaning in that ancient culture. It was used of the arrival or coming or visit of an important official or dignitary or king to a city. So, for example, when an emperor would visit a city and he'd walk into the city, there would be great pomp and circumstance and ceremony with banquets and, and um, like Olympic games and wreaths and bows and almost like this carnival-type atmosphere to um, honor his arrival. And sometimes they would even mint coins with the emperor's face on it as a way to honor him. In other words, in that culture that Paul was writing to and in the culture that John is at, this Greek culture, the coming, that word the coming, it was a huge public festive loud event where everyone knew the king was coming. In other words, in that culture, it was not some secret thing where like the guy slipped in and nobody knew he was coming. The emperor came in and we didn't know. It was like, it would be like this. Okay, if President Trump came to Sterling, you would know. And this town would make a big deal about it, I'm pretty sure. Regardless of what you think of Trump, former, against him, that doesn't matter. There would be pomp and circumstances to welcome any president or any high dignitary. Now, he may want to come in secretly and slip in and meet with some people and slip out. That's not the Greek word for coming. The word for coming that's used there is a public, big, huge event where everybody knows that the king is coming. So let me ask you a question. When Jesus comes back, is it going to be secret where nobody knows or is it going to be a big festive thing where it's loud and everybody knows? Okay. Let me lay my cards on the table and tell you what I believe. And again, you can disagree with me tonight. I believe there's only one second coming of Christ. 
Now let me draw for you what some people believe there is. And I'm going to draw for you what I don't see the Bible teaching. If you believe this, you are more than welcome to believe this. This is a doctrine we're not going to divide over. You're free to have your view. I'm free to have my view. And at the end of the day, when you get to heaven, you'll realize you're wrong. No, I'm just, no, no, I'm just, I'm just joking. I'm just joking on that. Nullifies everything I said. So, so some people, some people believe that, okay, so here's earth. Some people believe that when Jesus comes back, it's going to be a secret coming. In the sense that only Christians are going to know he's coming back. And there's going to be a, a rapture of believers. And everybody's going to be looking around like, where is everybody at? What, what, what's going on here? The people on the earth are not going to see Jesus coming back. But people are just going to disappear and they're not going to wonder what's going to happen. And then for seven years, you're going to have this period of great tribulation on the earth. And then at the end of that great tribulation, then Jesus is going to really come back. This is the real second coming. This is the one where it's loud and he comes with his, um, his angels and then there's the judgment. And then so... In this scenario, let me ask you a question. How many comings are there of Jesus? There's two. So it's not a second coming. It's a second coming and a third coming, if you think about it. So what I'm telling you is this. I believe... This is just... I'm laying my cards on the table, okay? So let me just tell you what I believe. Okay, here's, here's the earth, here's timeline of the earth. When Jesus comes back at the second coming, simultaneously, that's when the resurrection of the dead slash rapture takes place. The second coming and the resurrection slash rapture is a simultaneous back-to-back one-time event, not separated by a secret coming and then later another coming. Now, I also believe that there's times of tribulation all the, all the way through here. But right before Jesus comes back, I think it's ramped up pretty extensively. And you may even have a, an actual antichrist on the scene during that time. So, I believe that the coming of the Lord is a... So, it's like this. Simultaneous back-to-back event. Jesus comes back, we go up. And that's it. Some people believe in a secret rapture. Jesus comes back, Christians go up, everybody's looking around, what happened, left behind, there's seven years tribulation, then Jesus comes back, really, this time again, to set up his kingdom on earth. So there's two, there's a secret coming and secret, there's a secret coming in rapture, and then there's a, a second coming in resurrection. So let's just look at this passage of scripture. Go to chapter 5, verse 2 for a moment. Chapter 5, verse 2, what, look at the wording there. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come. Like, a, Am I talking about the right thing there? Oh, okay. Now concerning times and dates and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord. Okay, 
What is the day of the Lord? Is there days of the Lord or day of the Lord? When you go through the Bible, it talks about what? The day of the Lord or the days of the Lord? The day. The day of the Lord. So if there's a secret rapture, is that the day of the Lord? Or is the second coming the day of the Lord? Which one is it? If you, if you take my view that it's a back-to-back simultaneous event, you just see that as the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ. If you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, um, there we go. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, this is the one I was looking for. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken. What does Paul combine in that verse? The coming of the Lord and what? Our being gathered to Him. So he talks about a coming and a gathering. Okay? So the question then becomes, when Jesus comes back, is it going to be visible? Is it going to be loud? Is it going to be a time where people are caught up? Yes. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24, 30 through 31? Jesus said this, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see. Who's going to see? All the, all the tribes of the earth are going to see. Is this secret? Who's going to see Jesus coming back? Who? Okay. How is he going to come? On the clouds in heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And what's he going to do? He's going to gather his what? Elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. What does Jesus say here? He's going to come back. Everyone's going to see him. And what's he going to do? He's going to gather his elect. So I, my personal view, and you can disagree with this, is that Jesus links two events, his second coming and are being caught up to him as a simultaneous back-to-back event. So what I'm not saying I believe, I do not believe in a secret pre-tribulation rapture followed by seven years and then another second coming at the end of that time. A lot of people believe that, and it's a valid interpretation. I just don't see a lot of biblical evidence for it. If you do, wonderful. Just be willing to tell me, what evidence you see for that and why you hold to that. So Jesus is going to come back on the clouds. And what does Revelation 1-7 say? Behold, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. Okay, who? All the tribes will mourn, every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. Every passage of Scripture that talks about the second coming of Christ, do you see anything in there about this being secret or people not knowing what's going on? What does it say? All the tribes of the earth will mourn, every eye will see. Okay, now let's go back to Thessalonians again. Chapter 4. It's going to be loud. Paul says that the Lord's coming down from heaven will involve three very loud occurrences. Okay, so what's, and I've heard people that believe in the secret pre-tribulation rapture say, yeah, these are loud, but only Christians hear them. The world's not going to hear them. 
because they're going to be they're not going to know what's going on. They're not going to see Jesus coming. They're not going to know what's going on. All they're going to see is people disappearing and wondering what happened. So you, let, let the burden be upon you. Whether you I think these are loud that everybody hears. So first of all, what do you see there? First of all, there will be a cry of command. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Now, is this, does this sound secret to you? A whisper? Okay. Jesus said in John 5, 28-29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Who's going to hear his voice? All are going to hear the cry of command. And there's three functions which goes along with biblical numerology. There's a shout, mm-hmm. there's a voice of an archangel, and there's a trumpet. Yep, that's, yeah, and that's the next one. So there's three things here. First, there's a cry, the shout. Second, there's the accompanying voice of the archangel. Now, it says there, the voice of an archangel. There's only two angels that have names in the Bible that we know of. Who are the two angels that we know have names? Michael and Gabriel. Gabriel announced Jesus' birth. Most scholars believe that Michael, the archangel, will announce his, his coming. Now, it's not identified specifically as Michael, the archangel, but the only two archangels that we have names of in the Bible are Gabriel and Michael. So most scholars believe it's probably Michael, the archangel. So I don't know what an archangel sounds like, but it's probably pretty, what's it say? The voice of the archangel. So you've got a cry of command. That's going to be loud. The voice of the archangel. And then what's the third thing? If, if, that's, not, if that's not loud enough, the blowing of the shofar. Okay? Um, this wasn't like, when we think of a trumpet, what do we think of? like Rocky or something, like some theme that we're singing. Back then, it was not like, let's strike up the band. It was a shofar that was blown to get everybody's attention, like something major. Like, okay, when uh, every Friday at noon, what happens in the summer in Sterling? Tornado sirens go. And they're like right by our house, aren't they, Tony? <laughs> like really right by your house. And it's like, and like after a while, you kind of go, okay, it's Friday at noon, it's going to blare. But they want you to know that, it, it's working, okay? It's loud. That's kind of what the trumpets, to get your attention. And that's an Old Testament imagery of the trumpet. Uh, Joel 2.1, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the, the, Lord, of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And it is near. So even the Old Testament said the day of the Lord is coming, and it's near. Okay? Matthew 24.31, he will send out whoops yeah he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other what type of trumpet call loud, loud. okay again is there anything secret about this what's paul paul's bending over backwards to say it's going to be loud people are going to know you can't you can't get away from it and then Revelation says, and Matthew says, all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn when they see this. So when they hear the trumpet, when they hear the voice of the archangel, when they hear the cry of command, when they see Jesus coming, what's going to be the response of lost people? 
We'll go back to we'll go back to Revelation here in a minute and look at it. Okay, First Corinthians 15, 51 through 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will raise and be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Okay. So Paul basically starts out by saying the dead in Christ will go first before we who are alive. The coming of Christ is going to be loud. But then in verse 17, he talks about what about those of us who are still alive? So what happens to those who are alive on the earth who are in Christ? Verse 17, those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Caught up. Those who will caught, caught up will go next to meet Jesus in the air. The word caught up, harpazo in the Greek, means to be snatched, translated, or grabbed. Now you may say, well, where do we get the word rapture? I'm glad you asked. The word rapture comes from the Latin translation of the text, rapture. The Latin word for caught up is where we get the word rapture. So let me address the issue again. Do I believe in a rapture? If by rapture you mean a secret coming of Christ where believers are secretly removed from the earth and then go to heaven for a seven-year tribulation after which Jesus then comes back, not at a second coming, but really a third coming, then I don't believe in that definition of a rapture. But what do I believe? I do believe that in a twinkling of an eye, we who are still alive will be miraculously and supernaturally caught up and given a new body. We will undergo a transformation and get new glorified bodies. So I believe that we will be caught up. I just think it's, it's a simultaneous back-to-back -back event. So think of it this way. Some people think of a rapture as a removal. I wanna, the whole point that there's a rapture so the church is removed while tribulation goes on. Let me ask you a question. In this passage of Scripture, do you see anything about being removed from tribulation? Do you see anything about a thousand-year reign? Now, I'm not saying those things aren't there in other places in the Bible, but right here they're not taught. Think about the rapture not as a removal but as a reunion, a reunion with dead loved ones and ultimate reunion with Christ. Now, what does it mean that we're going to meet the Lord in the air? We'll meet the Lord in the air. Okay, the word meet also carries significant meaning. It was used in that culture of the custom of sending a delegation outside the city to receive or greet or meet a dignitary and then escort them back into the city. So when the king was coming, you would send a delegation out to greet the king, make this huge issue with the king, and then you would come back to the city. Okay, so you'd go out and greet him and then come back together. Now, Here's the thing that this passage of Scripture doesn't tell you that you probably are wondering. What does it not say? What does the text not say? The mystery in this verse is that Paul doesn't say where we go after this resurrection. It just says we're caught up in the air and we meet Jesus in the clouds. Does it, does it tell us where we go? I wish he would. Does it say we come back to earth? 
Does it say we go back up to heaven? It just says, it says, we'll be with the Lord. Now, what's the significance of meeting Jesus in the clouds? Well, that's the way Jesus left. Acts 1, 9 through 11, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him up out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come, into, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus left the earth in the clouds. He will come back in the clouds. What does John say in 1 John 3, 2? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Here's the point for me. What does Paul end that with? Verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I really don't care where I go after I meet Jesus because I know I'm going to be with Him forever. Does that make sense? The point is not where do you go. The point is who are you with? You are there to meet Jesus in the air. And if we go back up to heaven, awesome. If we come back to earth, awesome. He's come to get me. So wherever He's taken me, I'm going to be with Him and He's not going to lose me. Um, so there's a lot of details that are left out on this passage of Scripture. So this passage of Scripture teaches a resurrection of the dead, a catching up of the alive, a transformation of bodies, and a loud event at the coming of Christ. Before we go back to Revelation, questions on that. This is where I thought a lot of you would have issues with me tonight because some of you may believe in a pre-tribulation rapture and a, you know, kind of two comings of, of Christ and more of a secret rapture. And that's okay if you do. Any questions? Just a comment. Sure. Uh, there won't be any need for reporters to tell what happened. Every person, every tribe, every person will know exactly what just happened yeah. or what they just saw. Sure. Yeah. Now, maybe they don't know what happened and they'll have to, well, here's a Bible that says something about this. Right. And here's the thing. <laughs> Reporters are not going to be getting on the news to report what happened. Because if you go, let's go back to Revelation for a moment. Go back to Revelation for a moment. If the coming of Christ, if, in my view, if the coming of Christ and the resurrection is a simultaneous back-to-back -back event, that's the end. What happens then? It's, how does the end, well, let's just go to the end of chapter 6. What do people do? They hide in the rocks because they know the great day of the wrath of the Lamb has come. And so, um, you know, some of these left behind books, and, and I have to be real careful because when I, was, when I was a youth pastor in Colorado Springs, and hopefully he's not watching because he's a friend of mine on Facebook, um, Jerry Jenkins, who wrote the left behind books, his son was in my youth group. And so I've been to Jerry Jenkins' house a few times and I've met him and his son and... Um, he was a little upset that Kirk Cameron played, you know, he, they wanted to get Tom Cruise. This is what he told me back in the day. I met, him, I met him one time at a restaurant, and he's like, yeah, we were really trying to get Tom Cruise to play, but we ended up getting Kirk Cameron, and they were a little upset. I'm like, do you think Tom Cruise would actually put me in a left behind? So anyway, um, so there, there is that left behind theology where, like, you know, everybody's wondering what happened and, and things like that, and, and it's fine if you believe that. I'm just, I'm just trying to say, man, if you look at the evidence of what we just looked at, 
I don't see anything about secret. I don't see anything about... Um, I just see it as a simultaneous back-to-back event. Okay. All right, let's get back to the seals. Okay, let's go back to Revelation chapter 6. And so, the rider on the white horse, and we talked a little bit about this last week. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, are you thinking that there's going to be like an actual rider on an actual white horse going around the world? Oh, well, that's what it says. So I, I don't have anything else to go on. Unless you take it symbolically, like we've always been taking things and say... Well, if we take it symbolically, then we've got to get something that says, oh, this is the white horse because I don't know. And that's why, that's why Revelation is difficult because sometimes it just doesn't come right out and tell us what the symbolism is. And so when do you take it, like is it a literal rider on a literal horse doing these literal judgments? Or is a horse a symbol of power and the color a symbol and and what's explained there, explain it? Um, Because if you look at these, like for example, the second horse, this, yeah, yeah, let me see if if we go through these, let me see if I can answer your question. Yeah, let me see if I can answer your question as we go through these. That's a, that's a good question, um, and that's an interpretive question, is are these, are these going to be literal horses that come at the end time that we will see, oh, there's the white horse, it's time for conquest, and are they sequential? Like the white horse comes and then right behind him comes the next horse, or do they go out simultaneously? Is it happening now and it will intensify in the future? I, I think it's an already not yet type thing. Is that, is that, I don't know if that answers your question. It doesn't, it doesn't answer your question. <laughs> I plead the fifth. So, um, so let's, just, let's just look at these, and then, and then maybe, we'll, well, maybe we'll learn together. So seal number one in verse three is the white horse. I'm sorry, um, verse number two. Behold, a white horse, its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, I told you last week there were four predominant views. One of the predominant views is that this is Jesus. And that's a valid view. But let me give you a couple of reasons why I think it probably is not Jesus. Let me just give you some arguments why it may not be Jesus. It may be Jesus, but it may not. In 6.2, the writer wears a victor's wreath. Now, it, our, the ESV says crown. It's actually the Greek word for a, a wreath. Not like a king's crown, but a wreath that you'd win after the Olympics that they'd put on. So it's more of a victor's wreath. And he's carrying a, a bow. Um, does Jesus ever carry a bow or does he have a, a sword coming out of his mouth and is he wearing a crown? Because um, in 1911, at the end of the Revelation, Jesus is crowned with many crowns and has a sharp sword coming from his mouth. So if you're going to take a one-to-one imagery, this rider on a white horse has a victor's wreath and a bow. Jesus in chapter 19 has a crown of many crowns and a sword. It could be telling the same thing or it may be different. Another argument of why this is probably not Jesus is why would Jesus, the lamb, open the seal while at the same time be the one who rides on the white horse when the seal is broken? Like I'm going to ride on the, I'm going to open the seal and then I'm going to jump on the horse. Now, this is where the most important thing was. The crown was given to him. 
or permitted for him to wear the crown. In Revelation, when something was given or permitted, it usually means that God is sovereignly granting permission for evil powers to carry out their work under his sovereignty, namely the beast and the false prophet when we get to that chapter. Some people think it's an antichrist. I don't see anything in this passage to tell you that it's a literal antichrist. I, here's what I think it is, and I could be wrong. I believe it's a general symbol of conquest and warfare because what did Jesus tell us in Matthew 24 is going to happen? There will be what? Wars and rumors of war. And so somebody coming out with a bow to conquer sounds to me like a symbol of warfare. So is warfare happening right now? Will there be an intensification of warfare towards the very end? Yes. Whether that's World War III, whether that's China and Russia having a coalition against Israel, and I, mean, I don't know how that all works out. The Bible doesn't give us that information. It's very cryptic. Wars and rumors of wars. And you could sit there all day long and look at the newspaper and say, we're in the end times. We're nervously in the end times because there's a war going on. When's there not been a war going on? Now, should we be concerned if we see a major war going on in the world? Yeah, just because of safety of our troops and just as a concerned person. Does that necessarily mean the end's coming? Maybe, maybe not. Um, yeah, you can read the signs of the times, but wars are always happening. But again, I think at the end, there's going to be an intensification of the wars. So my personal opinion is if you see a bunch of wars ramping up, more so than it's ever been in the history of the world on a grand scale, we're probably closer to the end than we were yesterday, which is true anyway. We're always closer the next day anyway. All right. So seal number two, the red horse. This is probably not invasion from outside forces like armies and the conquest of war, because I think that's what the first horse is. This, if you read very, very carefully, this is probably warfare, hatred, violence done people to people in, in martyrdom. Okay? Zechariah 14, 13 says this, On that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the other will be raised against the hand of the other. Okay, violence against one another. So look at very carefully what it says. Read your Bible very carefully. Verse 4. Out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should what? People should slay or kill one another. Okay? So this is people killing one another. Men slaying one another. The word for slay there or kill, this is not John's normal word for warfare, but it's usually used either for execution of believers or Jesus' death on the cross when he was the slaughtered lamb. It's the word for slaughter or slay or kill one another, like murder. It's what John, the actual author of 1 John in Revelation, wrote in 1 John 3.12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Same Greek word there, slayed his brother, murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own brother's deeds were evil, or his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So the word, word there is murder is the same word for slay. So it's people coming against... It's not people dying in war. 
It's violence being perpetrated person to person. So it's an intensification of person to person violence. And especially against Christians. Yeah, you're seeing person to person violence, an intensification of murder and slang. And in the context of this, um, he was given the great sword. Back in Revelation chapter 5, 6, and 9, it talks about Jesus being the slaughtered lamb, a lamb as though it had been slain, a lamb that had been slaughtered. It's the, the, the great sword there at the end of verse 4, he was given a great sword. That term was the sacrificial knife used to slaughter lambs. So it's kind of a double image here. If you take both these ideas, you see bloodshed, anarchy, persecution, and lawless violence as signs of the end of the age. Person-to-person violence and especially execution of Christians and martyrdom. Now, has that been happening all, around, all the time? Will there be an intensification of that towards the end? Yes. Are these concurrent or are these consecutive? It's like, okay, the wars come and then this comes. I think they're happening all the time. But again, there's, a, there's an intensification. Well, it reminds me of two things. There yes. was the battle of Gideon, I think it was. Yeah. The characters went and slaughtered one another. They were afraid of what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're skilling, yeah. Yes, Jerry. Would this be the same knife, the same type of knife they used at the Passover when they slaughtered the yeah. lamb? Yeah, or what it would have been what the priest would have used to slaughter the lamb at the temple on the Day of Atonement. It's the same word for Jesus being the slaughtered lamb, he, the, the lamb that was slain. That word really means to have your throat slit, either by execution or by martyrdom or, or sacrificing. Um, so that, there you have that one. Okay, so the third is the black horse. How much time do we have tonight? The black horse. Again, this comes from Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 16. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. What does he say here about the black horse? Verse 6, I heard what seemed to be a voice um, in the midst of four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. What's he talking about there? A denarius was a day's wage, and it's what you had to buy to eat. And probably what it's talking about is inflation, 10 to 12 times inflation of what you would normally buy. So this is a period of inflation, famine, scarcity, um, it, it probably represents the rich oppressing the poor, especially the Christian poor who are the original recipients of this letter. So economic hardship due to injustice, especially famine. So there's, when, in times of famine, let me just ask you this. If there's a famine in the land, who's going to get the food? The rich and powerful, because they can make it happen. Who's going to not get it? People like us, okay? <laughs> They're not rich and powerful, okay? So if there's a worldwide famine, do you think Christians are going to be empowered to be getting, getting food? 
so there's so so you take sometimes you can lose the forest for the trees with these okay so we're talking wars intensification of murder and persecution and martyrdom of christian and intense oppression based upon famine and scarcity and then you have the fourth horse the pale horse or the the green the dead the one that looks like death death warmed over horse Ezekiel 14.21, For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. What does it say there? Verse 8, Behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill it by what? Sword, famine, pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. This is kind of um, a combination of all of them put together. And they were to kill with the sword. Verse 8, this is not the, the short sacrificial sword that was mentioned up in the, other, in the other verse about the red horse. This was more a heavy battle sword like the one David used to cut off Goliath's head. Um, so you can analyze each of these in detail, but I think the composite is you take all four of these together and say, when this happens, it's happening now, but when this happens on a grand scale, it is God's way of judgment upon the lost, upon unbelievers, and it's going to be um, a very trying time when this happens. Yeah. And the question is, do we see a time period there? Do we, I mean, in here, do you see how long it's going to last? It doesn't say for seven years. So we don't really know how long it's going to last, the intensity of when it's going to start. Um, again, this is where Revelation gets to be a little difficult because there's no, there's no start and end at this point. It just, it's an explanation of what, what's going to happen, not in, in, de, in a timetable detail down to the, to the last detail. Um, we talked about martyrs, um, seal number five. We talked a little bit about this last week, and I'm not going to go over this a lot. The question is, when will they finally be vindicated and the opposition to Christianity ever end? And the answer is unexpected. It's going to get worse before it gets better. So let's talk about martyrdom. What is martyrdom? Do you guys ever go to Voice of the Martyrs? Cruelty. Cruelty. Yeah, it's the killing of Christians. Mm -hmm. So 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus may at some point in their life be persecuted. What does it say? Will be persecuted. If you want to live a godly life. If you live like the world and your lifestyle is no different, are you going to be persecuted? No, because you look just like the world. And if you truly live for Jesus, you're going to feel the heat. Now, these, these um, martyrs are crying out to God in verse 10, How, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you would judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, are these, are these martyrs crying out in vengeance for God? To, like, are they, they wanting God to take vengeance upon them like they're in anger? 
Or is it more a cry of justice? Is it okay to ever cry out for justice? The Psalms do it all the time. Psalm 79.10. Why should the nation say, where's their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before your eyes. Then you've got Psalm 94.3. Oh, how long shall the wicked, how, sh how long shall the wicked exult? Do you ever feel that? Man, the wicked are getting away with everything. I, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm towing the line. I'm following Jesus. And I'm having trouble. I'm having hardships. But this guy over here is doing everything ungodly, and he seems to be prospering. He seems to be getting away with murder, and, and nothing's happening to him. God, that's unfair. Why, why is he not getting the shaft and I am? You probably wouldn't say that. You may say that to God. Have you ever said that to God? I'm sure you have. So this is not some petty cry for vengeance, like personal vengeance that these martyrs, under the, their souls under the altar. It's a cry for God's reputation as a holy judge who has to punish injustice for the killing of Christians. Is, is martyrdom of Christians a wicked thing? Does it bother you that people are getting killed for their faith around the country, around the world? Do you ever cry out for God to, like when you cry out for justice, it's not like, it's not like you're doing it out of petty vengeance. It's like, God, you're, this is an evil that you've got to make right. And Lord, would you please make it right? That's what they're crying for. And they're given white robes, which is a symbol of purity, faithfulness. Now, the threat of being put to death by the sword was a reality for the original audience. Let's go back into the, four, the, the seven churches for a moment. So who's John writing to? Who's the original audience? These seven churches. So it's got to mean something to them first before it means something to us. What would it have meant to them? Were they living in a culture where there was fear of martyrdom and persecution and things like that? Absolutely. So go back to Revelation 3, 8 through 11, the second church in Smyrna. So Revelation, I'm sorry. Did I say 3, 2, sorry, it should be Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And Revelation 2, 12 through 13. I don't know why I put Revelation chapter 3. It's, we're in Revelation chapter 2. Chapter 2, 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your what? Tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will, be, you will have tribulation. Be faithful, what? Unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. That sounds like it's happening at the original audience. Be faithful unto death. Okay, look at verses 12 through 13, Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Pergamum was the hardest place to live out of all of those churches in Asia Minor. Out of all those seven churches, Pergamum was the hardest place. Where is the place? Jesus calls it the place of Satan's throne. 
How would you like that to be your hometown? What's your hometown? I live in Satan's throne. Ooh, sound like a good place to live. The thing about this city of Pergamum was this. The most marked distinction of the city was the temple of Zeus Soter with an altar that looked like a throne. It was 40 feet high and one of the um, seven wonders of the ancient world. Animals were sacrificed on this altar and they were burned to like Zeus. And so the word Soter placed at the end of the name of Zeus or Asclepius, the word Soter means Savior. So there was a temple to Zeus Soter in the temple of Satan. So that would mean the chief thing in your, in your city is this big temple that says, Zeus is my Savior. Savior Zeus. Now, what does the Bible say about Jesus? Who's the only Savior? Jesus. And so, not only did you have the throne of Satan where it said, Zeus is my Savior, and they would sacrifice animals to the pagan gods, once a year you had to pinch incense on the altar and you had to say, Caesar is Lord. So, for a Christian, only Jesus is both Savior and Lord. Christians who refuse to acknowledge Caesar as Lord or God face confiscation of property, exile, or death by the sword. And who was killed in that church? It's listed by name. Antipas, my faithful witness, was dead, was killed. We really don't know who Antipas was. He was probably maybe the, the original pastor. So, the original audience faced persecution. Jesus talks about persecution. Paul talks about persecution and tribulation. What is my personal view again? Again, you can disagree with me. Totally fine. My personal view is that this, this is not some seven-year period where Christians have been raptured out of the earth. Nowhere does the book of Revelation give us any indication that this is a seven-year period on earth where Christians have been raptured and those who are left behind only experience persecution. In the context of Revelation, this type of experience is true for all Christians in all times. In some places more extreme than others, but again, I believe it will intensify right before the end. All right, so at the very end of Revelation chapter 6, you've got the great earthquake, the sixth seal, the great earthquake. What's the significance of a great earthquake? So you've got there in verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. What's the significance of an earthquake? Let me give you some verses throughout the Bible that talk about an earthquake. Isaiah 2.19, And the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Does that sound like what's going on there when people are hiding in caves and rocks at the great earthquake? And then there's some cataclysmic events in the heaven. What's going to happen in the heavens? Okay, the, the, the sun's going to become black as sackcloth, moon-like blood, and then the stars are going to fall. So some major cataclysmic events in the heavens. Okay, Isaiah 34, 4. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, and their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, 
like leaves falling from a fig tree. Now, none of us have fig trees. Do any of you guys have fig trees? I don't think figs grow in Sterling, Colorado. Maybe they do. But you've seen, if you take a tree where the, the fruit is ripe, and what do you do when you shake it? <laughs> Falls. It's the image of like, when you rustle a tree and the things come shaking down, think about the, the universe shaking and the stars falling down. Like That's that kind of image there. Ezekiel 32, 7. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. Okay, so even the Old Testament talks about this. What about Jesus? Does Jesus talk about this? Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What about Peter? 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies melt as they burn? What's Peter saying? In light of the second coming of Christ, what should our lifestyle be? One of holiness and expectancy waiting for that, that time. Now, what's the response of the non-believers to this? Now, this is something that I read just two days ago that I added to the notes that I'd never caught before. John uses symbolism here by giving six classes of people. What's six a number of? It's one less than what? Seven. What's seven a number of? Completion. One less than seven is six. Six is the number of humans. The unperfect number. Sinful humanity. Number six. And he gives six classes of people here to cover the whole gamut of, of people on the earth. Starting with the greatest to the least in the world's eyes. Kings. These would be dictators and supreme rulers of the highest order. What do, what do kings think they're immune from? I'm never, nothing's ever going to happen to me. You know, think about Exodus with the Pharaoh. Nothing's going to happen to me. I'm the Pharaoh. I'm the king. I'm the supreme dictator. I tell people what to do. I've got the nuclear codes. Nothing's going to happen to me. Okay, the great ones. These are those that are next in authority. Maybe the princes or the, the second in command. Generals, these are the ones that actually do the bidding of the, the nations, the, the high generals, those that are leaders of armies. Then you've got the rich. These are the leaders in commerce and industry, the moguls. Then you've got the powerful. This could be men who hold influence, whether in government or education or business. They, they hold power. And then you, what, what do you have next? Slave or free, the lowest class of citizens in that culture. So... When he uses these six classes of people from the, the most top person in the world to like the most basic person in the world and everything in between, what John is saying, it's a symbolic way of saying that all walks of life from the most powerful to the average person on the street who dwell on the earth as unbelievers will face the wrath of the Lamb. And what do they do? 
Verse 16, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? You get an image of this from Isaiah 13, 7-8. Therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame at the coming of the Lord will be a terrifying day for those without Christ. Joel 2.11 The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can what? Endure it. What do they, what do they ask here? The great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? Zephaniah the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries, cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry for the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither shall their silver and their gold be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Okay, Zephaniah, tell us what you really mean there. <laughs> and then Malachi, the Italian prophet, the last prophet in the Old Testament, uh, Malachi. But who can, under, who can endure the day of His coming and who can stand when He appears? For He's like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. So what's the ultimate question at the end of chapter 6? Who can stand? Who can endure? Who can be there to endure the wrath of the Lamb? And I wish I could spend more time on this than three minutes because this is where I want to bring it all to a close. What's the overall theme of chapter 6? As followers of Jesus, we will suffer both persecution and possible martyrdom. And it may appear that God is not vindicating those who have suffered in the present, but He will execute His justice on that final day. In the present, we often cry out for justice when we've been the victim of injustice. Here's the hard reality. In this life, those who sin may not receive justice through an imperfect government or authority structure. But that does not mean they will never receive justice. It is delayed until that final day. In the meantime, we should endure with patience that God is sovereignly in control of all things and will bring history to a close on His appointed timetable. The hardest thing about being a victim of injustice in this earth and you don't see justice is what do you cry out? I want to see the person that perpetrated against me receive justice what happens if they don't will they get justice not in this world but in the next so God will make all things right so as we live in this fallen world of pain and persecution and martyrdom you can hide out you can you know try to escape and try to think man why is this happening to me or you can trust in a sovereign God who's working things out in his timetable he works all things out for good. He's got your back. 
He's, he's, he's doing his plan in your life, and you can trust that he's bringing everything to a close. And the question is, do you have to fear that final day if you're a Christian? Absolutely not. And that's why chapter 7 leads us into the confidence we can have that we won't endure that, that we have the promise of heaven. So it's kind of sobering. I mean, we're ending on a sobering note tonight because nobody that's tender-hearted towards lost people wants to face the reality that there is a day of judgment. So what's the urgency? What should the day of judgment motivate us to do with urgency? Tell people about Jesus. Tell people about Christ. And let that be a motivation and urgency for us to tell as many people as we come in contact with that the day of wrath is coming. Flee the day of wrath. Flee it and come to Jesus. He's a perfect Savior. He's a Lamb that conquered and rose again. Well, let's do this, guys. Let's pray. And if you have other questions afterwards, you can come up and let me know. Father, thank you for this time tonight. I know it's difficult stuff when we look at Revelation. Sometimes our, our minds don't fully grasp the truth. Lord, one thing we do want to be assured of is that um, you're coming back. Whether we like it or not, you're coming back, and you're coming back in power and glory. The ultimate question we've got to ask is, are we ready for that day? Are we ready to face what comes that day with joy and with expectancy, or do we face that day with fear and dread? Lord, I pray that everybody leaves this room with the hope that they know that they have eternal life, that they've trusted you for salvation, Jesus, and that um, they don't have to fear this day. But in the twinkling of an eye, we'll all be changed and we'll meet you in the air and it'll be a joyous reunion. Uh, Let us encourage one another with these words. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.